Well, last week, we ended with Moses surrounded by the cloud of God's glory after the law has been given, after the book of covenant has been read, and Moses has ascended on top of Mount Sinai to meet with God. As we learned in chapter 24, he was on top of Mount Sinai in God's cloud for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, God is, God is doing all the speaking with careful and detailed instructions. He is tasking Moses with building this tabernacle that will sit in the midst of the Israelite community as they, as they travel. It's a portable tabernacle, and it is surrounded by a courtyard, an fenced courtyard. And in the midst of that tabernacle, this tent divided into two rooms, one place called the Holy Place, the other called the Most Holy Place, where the Ark of the Covenant would dwell. God dwells in the midst of his people. Now, there is a critically important reason why Moses had this long stay on the mountain. It's because God's holiness demands more than just casual contact. For God to dwell with a sinful people, there has to be, there has to be perfection. There has to be purity. There, there has to be someone unstained by sin. And the, the tabernacle is that place, the, the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It was called the mercy seat. And there were two cherubim that, that stood at each end. And when, when the, ho- the, holy, the most holy place once a year would be entered by the high priest, the day of atonement, he would go in and he would sprinkle blood on top of that atonement cover called the mercy seat. And there he would meet with God. There he would make sacrifice for the sins of the people. There he would hear from God on behalf and for the people. This most holy place. But the tabernacle was not only God's dwelling place. And as we will read in this, these chapters, and this morning we're going through chapters, at the end of chapter 27 all the way through to chapter 31. At the beginning of chapter 28, we, we read that this place, this tabernacle, is not just a place where God dwells and people just from a distance look. It's also called the tent of meeting. It's the place where God meets where God condescends to come down and meet with his people, to meet with Israel, particularly, in particular, the high priest. In chapters 27 through 31, they continue God's instructions as he details how his people are to meet with him. Not just anybody can come into the holy place, And only one can come into the most holy place. And throughout each of these chapters that we read this morning, from the end of 27 through 31, throughout each of these chapters, there are two words that connect everything together that is happening. Two words. And those two words simply make the title of my message this morning. These words explain the purpose of the tabernacle. These words explain the priestly clothing that we will talk about this morning. These words explain the consecration of these priests. These words explain the requirements needed to enter the holy place. These words 
explain the calling of two men, Bezalel and Oholiab. And, and the reminder at the very end of chapter 31, these words explain the reminder to keep the Sabbath. And those words are sin and grace. If you want to understand simply the book of Exodus, it's about sin and grace. These two words tell the story of God's love for his people and his plan to rescue them from sin by his grace. The tabernacle and the priests are God's, as we will read, they're God's grace-filled but temporary solution for Israel's sin. And this solution is a shadow It is a shadow of the grace to come in Jesus Christ who will deal with sin forever by his grace. And so let's look at a brief overview of each chapter. The chapter 27, if you would turn there and look at verse 20. This begins the the priestly responsibilities and God speaks to, to Moses and he says, you shall command the people of Israel in verse 20 that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. And here's where we, for the first time, these words are spoken. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. In verse 28, then bring near to you Aaron and your, your brother and his sons with him and from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Chapter 28 is all about priestly clothing. All about what these men are to wear that they might have the opportunity to enter the holy place and for Aaron, the high priest, to enter the most holy place. When I was a kid, and if you're older than 50, you will probably remember this. When I was a kid, gas stations were very different. They had attendants who would come up to your car because when your car came into the gas station, there'd be this little black like hose and you'd run over it and you'd hear this ding, ding. And these attendants would come running out and they, these attendants would, would fill your gas tank for you. They would wash your windshield. They'd even pull up the hood and they would check your oil. And, and they, were, they were dressed. They had, they had a uniform on with a name tag. Sometimes they wore a hat. They sometimes even wore a bow tie. And, and these guys, these guys were, were taking care of you when you came into the gas station. There was no such thing as self-service back then. No such thing as self-service back then. The tabernacle and the necessity of dealing with sin through, through animal sacrifices and the wearing of proper clothing was necessary because the tabernacle was not a self-service place. It wasn't as though anybody in Israel could just walk through the entrance to the courtyard and wander their way over to the tabernacle 
and then go through into the holy place, maybe holding a bird and sacrificing. No, 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 no. This was not a self-service place. In fact, the reason there was a fence around the courtyard was because like the mountain, when God told Israel he was going to meet with them on the mountain, and he said, you may only come up to the foot of the mountain because if you come closer, you will die. The same holds true for the courtyard and the tabernacle. That if you come too close, as we saw back in Exodus 19 with the mountain, if you come too close, you will die because God's holiness, God's holiness cannot bear sin in its presence. And so it is necessary for there to be priests, to be men who will stand before God, who are consecrated men, who can make sacrifices for sin on behalf of the people. But there are conditions before these men are allowed to come before God. They must wear special clothing. They must have a uniform so that they can be the one serving the people. And these, this uniform, this clothing, this priest, these priestly garments have great spiritual significance. There are two sets of clothing. There was one for the high priest and there was one for the other priests, Aaron's sons. And the high priest in particular is the one um, that I want to just quickly run through. I'm going to run through each of the chapters and then walk back and talk about the significance of each of these chapters. The high priest would wear an ephod. In 28.6 you saw, and they shall make an ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and a fine twined linen skillfully worked. And so there would be this ephod and it would have, it was like, it was like a vest and, and an apron at the same time. And, and I, I just can't imagine having to put these on all the time and, and how, how you had to put them on in the right order, in the right way. I mean, this morning I was trying to put this vest on and for some reason I kept getting it turned around and putting it on backwards. It took me three attempts just to get this vest on. And think about these guys having to put on these priestly clothing. And so this ephod, this vest and apron were on it were, were, two, were two stones. The shoulder pieces were held together and they, in, in gold settings there were two stones of onyx. And on each stone were six names of the tribes of Israel. So that when the priest walked into the most holy place, he bore on his shoulders the names of the tribes of Israel before a holy God. These were called stones of remembrance that God, not that God forgets, but that God, that these people's names are brought before the Lord. And then the next was a breast piece, which was a pouch with 12 stones, 12 precious stones in it. And on each stone was engraved the name of a tribe of Israel in gold settings. Again, these stones resting over the priest's heart. That's a significant symbolism there. And then on, inside this pouch were these two things called the Urim and the Thurim. 
And a lot of commentators aren't quite sure what they are. They, they might be stones, but they were used to, in a sense, like casting lots to, to find out before the Lord a decision that needed to be made or a judgment that needed to be made. And it's not like, it's not like the kind of things that we use when we were kids. When I was a kid, I had this thing called a magic eight ball. And you would shake it, and you'd ask it a question, and then you'd shake the magic eight ball, and it would give you a number of answers. It would say, yes, no, maybe, or ask again. And so you'd shake it. Well, that, that's not the same here. This, these, these were, in a sense, like when you read at the end of, uh, in Acts, when they're casting lots to replace Judas as one of the disciples. God was involved in this. But wisely there's no description because knowing humanity if we found out something like that i think we might make it ourselves oh yeah i need a urim and therm we sell them in the back you got a decision to make what job to take where to move what to wear okay use the urim and therm now now god wisely doesn't tell us what that is so you've got this ephod you've got this 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 breast piece with a gold chain that hangs down as a pouch. And then there's this robe. This robe is underneath the ephod. And it, at the robe is, again, finely, finely uh, crafted linen. And at the bottom of the robe, are, there are gold bells. And then there are pomegranates, a gold bell and a pomegranate, a gold bell and a pomegranate. And so when, when the priest, the high priest, would walk into the holy place and the most holy place, he would be heard. And again, there's, there's much speculation. What exactly does that mean? And we must be careful that we don't speculate and, and attach some symbolism that doesn't, that doesn't really have any scriptural basis. But it's there. And, and it, might, it might let the people know that the high, the high priest was in with God. And then there was a turban. And on top of the turban, the, the priest would wear the turban. And in front of the turban would be this gold medallion. And that gold medallion would say, holy to the Lord. And then he would have a, a coat, a tunic of, of fine linen underneath of the robe. And then underneath of that would be these undergarments that were to cover their nakedness, their sin. And there was a, a sash around all of this. And that's who the high priest was. That's what he wore. And Aaron's sons also would wear coats and hats as well made for them. Verse 40 of chapter 28. For Aaron's son, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. And you shall make them for glory and beauty. And so the, 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 the garments that these men are wearing are for God's glory. And they reflect God's beauty. And they cover. They cover these men. Now chapter 29, the priestly consecration. Now this is what you shall do, verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Now listen, Jesus has not yet come, obviously. It will be more than a thousand years before his incarnation. And until that day, Israel needs priests to stand before God on their behalf and make sacrifices for them so that they would be forgiven of their sin. Israel needs this. But before the high priests could be ordained, they too need to be cleansed and, sa and, and sanctified and purified 
because these men are sinners. And all of the utensils that they used and the tabernacle and the tent, everything needed to be sanctified. And so there were sacrifices made and blood was thrown on the sides of the altar. Blood was thrown on the utensils. Blood was thrown. These guys made these beautiful priestly linens, these clothes, and then to consecrate them, to sanctify them, blood would be sprinkled on top of them. It seems counterintuitive. It's so clean and pure, and then you throw blood on it. But it was absolutely necessary. And we see this in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 21. And I, let me read that to you. And in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. In the same way. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so four, four things have to happen so that these men are consecrated. Four things. In, in 29 verse 4, the first thing that has to happen is that they need to wash them with water. So the, the priests, these, these identified men to be priests, have to be washed with water. And then secondly, they need to be clothed in holy garments and put on Aaron, the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set a turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take, and then the third thing was to be anointing. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and pour it on their son's coast. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And then, and then the fourth thing that has to happen is a bull is brought, and then you shall kill the bull, verse 11, before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. Blood that represents sacrifice. And so four things have to happen. Washed in water, clothed in holy garments, anointed with, for holy service, and sacrifice of blood. Four shadows, brothers and sisters, of the salvation to come in Jesus Christ. Think about that. Four shadows of what is about to come in Christ. And even after Aaron and his sons have been consecrated for service, they still need to be cleansed every day before they go in. Every day, blood needs to be sprinkled. Every day, they need to be cleansed before they enter the holy place. A sacrifice of blood must be shed to atone for their sin. And then in chapter 30, we see more shadows of the salvation to come in Jesus Christ in this as the last piece of holy furniture, what is known as the altar of incense. This altar was about this high, about this wide. It was made of acacia wood covered in gold, and it stood right before the veil that went into the most holy place. And there were horns on this altar, and incense was burned there a pleasing aroma to God, a specially made incense. But blood needed to be put on the horns. So that last piece of there, again, before, before there was incense burned, blood needs to be put on the horns, blood needs to be shed, and then after the incense is burned, the priest can go into the most holy place. 
atoning for sin before God. And, and many commentators think that, those, that that incense and that aroma just represented the prayers of the saints. Again, we see a picture of sin and grace. As God hears prayers, but blood must be shed. And then in chapter 30, we see the census tax, or what is called the, the atonement money, where every person had to give half a shekel. Now, the atonement money did not pay for their sins. Blood needed to be shed. Blood needed to be shed. But the atonement money is just a shadow of the ransom that Christ paid for us. Another picture of sin and grace. And then you have this bronze basin. And the Lord said to Moses in 3017, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. And so we see the washing away of the blood as the, the priest would, would sacrifice on the bronze altar in the midst of the courtyard. They would sacrifice bulls and, and goats and lambs and pigeons and blood would be everywhere and it would be covering the, the clothing of the priests and, and their hands and they would go and then when the high priest would go to the most holy place or the priest would enter the most holy place they would have to wash in this basin that stood before the tent of meeting so that they were clean but also so that they would be clean from their own sin and then there was this anointing oil this special oil to anoint these men in their ordination, to anoint these men as set apart. And we see the same thing as the Holy Spirit sets us apart. Another reflection of sin and grace. And then in chapter 31, everything is made to God's glory and God's beauty. So he sets two men apart in particular to, and he gives them by his spirit, by filling with the spirit, he gives them this, this wonderful ability to skillfully lead in the construction of making the tabernacle and the priestly clothing. These two men are Bezalel and Oho Oholiab. I'm never going to get that name right. Just, just like the men who, who wrote scripture, who were inspired by God, these men in the same way were inspired by God to this work of grace to atone for man's sin. Again, sin and grace. And then God ends this section in 31 with a reminder to above all, in verse, in verse 12, and the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. God is the one who sanctifies. God ends this section with this reminder. And then, at the very end, he inscribes on stone tablets with, they say, the finger of God, he inscribes the Ten Commandments and he gives this to Moses, ending Moses' time on the mountain. Now, each of these chapters tell a vivid story of our sin and God's grace. And behind it all is a shadow of the coming Christ. 
Looking back in 28, this priestly clothing, Philip Ryken in his commentary says this. He says, there was only one problem with this priestly garment arrangement. The high priest himself was a sinner. No matter how magnificent his clothes were, how holy, glorious, or beautiful they were, they could not hide the sin in his heart. The sacrifices the priest made were neither perfect nor permanent. The sacrifices the high priest offered were neither perfect nor permanent. He had to keep going back into the tabernacle over and over to make atonement both for his sin and for the sins of God's people. See, to enter God's presence required perfect holiness, and even the high priest didn't have it. Sadly, as you go throughout Israel's history, you see again and again the high priests themselves turning away from God. You see Aaron, we will talk about next week in chapters 32 through 34, we will see Aaron next week, the high priest who has just been consecrated, turning away from God as he makes a golden calf. You look down the road a little bit where you see Nadab and Abihu who are priests who offer unholy fire to the Lord and die for it. You see even further down the road, Eli who allowed his sons to desecrate the temple. And you see even further on when this happens again and again, God's judgment comes and he removes the high priest from Israel. And Israel has no one to stand before God on their behalf. There's no one to wear the ephod. There's no one to bear the tribal names before God. There's no one to offer sacrifices for their sins. And it's because God's people need a perfect high priest who is not corrupted by any sin. They need someone who didn't need to wear special clothing. And God met that need in Jesus Christ. Clothed in his own righteousness, offering his own blood, appeasing God's wrath by his own death, Jesus is the perfect high priest. He met all the qualifications of a high priest. He was able to enter the most holy place, heaven, on his own merit, his own glory, his own beauty, and never again needing a tabernacle, a physical tabernacle and priestly clothing because Jesus is the tabernacle, God dwelling among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the tabernacle. That is Jesus Christ. And he is, as we read in Hebrews, the, the great high priest, the one who stands before God in seven, Hebrews 7.23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. 
since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Our sin keeps us from God, but grace was given to us in Christ who is our perfect high priest who is clothing us in righteousness which is our priestly clothing and robed like this we can enter God's holy sanctuary forever. Do you see how in this wonderful narrative, this wonderful story of these, these priests, which I understand it just can get a little bit tedious at times as you're reading through it again and again. This is, and he's putting on this and he's putting on that and, and make sure it's this length and make sure it's that length and make sure it's woven this way and make sure it's woven that way and make sure it's put on in this order. And you're just like, wow, my gosh, when is this going to end? But all of this, all of this is preparation for Christ. It's all, it, it, it's all a story of sin and grace fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In chapter 29, looking back at chapter 29, the priestly con- consecration, Peter tells us in, in 1 Peter 2.9 that we, we, we are a chosen race. And then he uses these words, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And so for us to fulfill these roles, the same four things that, that, happened, that needed to happen to the priests in their consecration also have to happen to us. What are those four things? Remember, they needed to be washed. They needed to be clothed in righteousness. They needed to be anointed with oil and blood needed to be shed for their sin. The same things have to happen for us. We need shed blood sacrifice for us. We need to be cleansed. We need someone else's clothing because our garments are as filthy rags. And that someone is Jesus Christ. In chapter 30, we see this, the altar and the tax, the census tax and the wash basin and the anointing oil. All of these are shadows of the coming Messiah. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice that our prayers may be heard. He he paid our ransom that we might be saved. His blood washes us from sin so that we would be clean and his spirit fills us so we'll be set apart for his service. Again, sin and grace. Sin and grace describe Israel's salvation in Exodus. Sin and grace. Israel never saw Jesus. We do. But they did see God's glory. And they heard God speak. And they met with him through priests. And brothers and sisters, sin and grace still define man and God today. It's still the same. And like Israel, we need a high priest to stand before God on our behalf, pleading for our forgiveness, ever making intercession for us, a perfect high priest, and that is, can only be Jesus Christ. Now, there are, there are wonderful benefits, wonderful benefits to having a perfect high priest. There were benefits to having a high priest in Israel's day. They were cleansed from sin, 
They could have God speaking to them and decisions being made. But that was only a shadow. And let me just express just a few of these benefits. Many books in particular, Hebrews, explain all that Christ has done for us as he puts aside this temporary tabernacle and temporary priesthood by his life and by his death on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead and becomes our permanent high priest who washes away all our sin, there are so many benefits. The first one is we are personally known by him. Each, each tribe's names were inscribed on the ephod shoulders and inscribed on the breastfeet where were the 12 stones. So Israel was, was taken into the most holy place before God with their names. Now, as a sovereign Lord who is omniscient, who knows all things, he, he knows the name of every person. But the priest didn't know every person personally. You're talking about over a million people in Israel in this camp. But our high priest, our great high priest, Jesus, knows our names. And they're not engraved on ephod shoulder pieces, and they're not engraved on stones on a breastpiece. But Isaiah, as Isaiah 49 tells us, They are engraved, we are engraved, our names are engraved on the palms of his hands. Isaiah 49, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. We are are known by him personally. So that, that when the high priest, our great high priest Jesus, intercedes for us, makes intercession before God, it's our names on his hands that are there. Hebrews 9 tells us that we are redeemed by his blood. Hebrews 9, 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We are eternally redeemed by his blood. We are made holy by his sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 14 tells us, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We have a priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Hebrews 4, one of the great passages that most of us know, since 4.14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because, they, because the high priest back then didn't know everybody personally and couldn't sympathize with them, but we have a high priest who knows us by name and can sympathize with us with us in every trial, in every pain, in every suffering, in every moment of life. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Brothers and sisters, when you are tempted, oh, does Christ know? Oh, yes, he does. And he knows your particular temptation. Let us then, since we have this great high priest, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
That's in relation to temptation. When I'm being tempted, let us with confidence at that moment draw near to the throne of grace for mercy and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Because when we are in temptation, that is a time of need. We have confident access to the Father, as that passage says. We are promised an eternal inheritance by his death in Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus stands before God on our behalf in 9.24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. I mean, it just goes on. We're, we're saved by Christ. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, are we eagerly waiting for him? Because he promises that if we are, when he returns, we we will experience, because of his death and his resurrection, we will experience salvation. We are clothed in his righteousness in Zechariah 3, um, verses 1 through 4. the, The high priest comes before God, and God looks at the high priest, and he just says, your clothes are filthy. They are filthy, and they are filthy with wickedness and sin. But God, in, the, in that moment, extends grace and, and clothes that high priest with new clothing, which is what Christ does for us. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. And as we read, read in Hebrews seven twenty five, Jesus intercedes for us before God. And finally, in in 9.14, we learn this about who we are. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We are, we, you and I, we are now priests before God. As Peter said, a royal priesthood. Philip Riken describes it this way. He says, God has given us, all of us, a sacred calling. We are priests of the living God, and we have a holy obligation to serve him. We no longer serve him in the tabernacle, but in his holy sanctuary, the church, and also in the world. We serve him by praising his name. We serve him by giving generously to the church. We serve him by binding up the wounds of the brokenhearted and embracing the outcasts of society. We serve him by loving those who are hard to love with the same merciful love that we have received from God in Christ. We serve him by telling people to trust in Jesus and by doing whatever we do for his glory. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. That's that's this story of the tabernacle, this story of the priestly clothing, and all that is going on in Exodus is just a shadow of what is to come in the future and what we now have the benefit of experiencing because we are in Christ. Our identity is not in us. Our identity is in Christ. 
We, we do all this, dear friends, because we have a great high priest who promises to never leave us, to never forsake us, who promises to be our shepherd, who will never let us go, who will always protect us, provide for us, feed us, and care for us because, as it says in John ten fourteen, he knows us by name. Jesus says in John 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Oh, what, what a narrative. What a story in Exodus that, that we, we are not, we are not needing the daily sacrifices anymore because one great sacrifice has come. And we have a great high and holy priest who can enter the heavens and stands before God, caring for us, interceding for us, pleading for us, sympathizing with us, redeeming us, loving us at every moment of every day. Let us, let us now, let us draw near to the throne of grace.